0: I pray that you are thankful to God to be in the house of prayer this evening. And I'm trusting that you have prepared your hearts to hear the Lord speak to you. This weekend, we're dealing with revival. And you know that there's never true revival without reformation. They go hand in hand. And tonight, we just wanna emphasize a very, very key dynamic in the experience of true revival. And I believe that if we can get this right, if we can get this first step, then by the grace of God, it will prepare us for all the other progressive steps we need to take until we find ourselves in the arms of Jesus. And so we're going to prepare our hearts for tonight's study as we look at God's call to true repentance. And I'd like to invite as many of you as are able to kneel with me as we approach the Lord in prayer at this time. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you have brought us all safely through another week. You have blessed us with life, health, and strength. Father, we thank you so much that you still have found enough value in our lives to count us amongst the land of the living. And we know, Lord, that the breath of life that you invested in us today, you expected a return on that investment. That return was that we were to offer you praise and thanksgiving and full surrender. We ask you, Lord, to please forgive us for falling short of your glory we ask you that you would please be merciful upon us and that you would send your Holy Spirit at this time that you would truly and indeed open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your law send your spirit dear God and may he minister to our minds and may we be drawn heavenward this is our prayer that we ask in Jesus name amen. What is a message without the word of God? So we want to make sure that we all have our Bibles in hand. Amen. And you're going to find that what we're going to study tonight, I believe, is fundamental, but what God's people need is fundamentals. Sometimes we can get so excited about all of the latest and newest and the greatest things, but if we don't remember and commit to heart and into daily practice the simple things that God has taught us to do so that we can finish this race, all the other things won't count. I want you to notice something that the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew, the third chapter. In Matthew, the third chapter, we look at a man by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one who needed to prepare people for their God. And the Bible says in Matthew, the third chapter, and we're going to start at verse one and take it to verse three, looking at the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. The Bible says, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John the Baptist, when he understood where he was in time and he understood Bible prophecy, John the Baptist knew that the people needed a message that was very straight and that was very direct, and the message was could not be any straighter than simply saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand you'll find that as John the Baptist was doing his ministry and giving his work, and as he was called of God to get the people ready for the coming of the Lord, eventually he found himself in prison. And as John the Baptist ended up in prison, you find that as his ministry was phasing out, another ministry was phasing in. And I want you to see that ministry in the book of Mark chapter 1. The Bible says in Mark the first chapter, speaking about John the Baptist... And as he was giving his message and his call to those to let them know that they are to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you'll find that as he was put in prison and his ministry was now going on the decrease, there was another ministry that was going on the increase. And notice whose ministry it was. The Bible says in Mark, the first chapter, and if you're there, say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Mark chapter one and verse 14, it says, now, after that, John was put in prison, who came into Galilee? Jesus. This is the ministry that was on the increase. It says, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it says in verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what did Jesus tell everybody to do? Repent ye and believe the gospel. As John's ministry was going on the decrease and Christ's ministry was coming up on the increase, Jesus picked right back up where John left off and Jesus now is on the scene and Jesus is telling everybody, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. But then eventually Jesus ascended. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus knew that probation was about to close on his own people because they were under a 490 year probationary time to get victory over sin. But because they did not enter into the experience of righteousness by faith, they had no victory. And therefore, here it is that as Jesus ascended into heaven and began his ministerial work in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, you will notice that when probation closed on Israel and now the message was to go to the Gentiles, the very man that God used who was none other than Paul to preach to the Gentiles, I wonder what was Paul's message. Go to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. Notice what the Bible says in Acts, the 17th chapter. First, John the Baptist, then Jesus himself, and now we're looking at Paul. The Bible says in Acts, the 17th chapter, Paul runs into a group of individuals who were worshiping an unknown God. And Paul wanted to proclaim who that unknown God was. And he began to teach them about Jesus. And as he did it, he got to a point in his sermon that he makes a very powerful point right here in Acts, the 17th chapter. And we're now going to go ahead and consider verse 30. The Bible says, as Paul was summarizing his message, that in verse 30, he says unto them, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to do what? to repent. Once again, here goes the message of repentance. The message of repentance is a message that is on the mind of God and anyone who is a servant of God, that message should be on their minds as well. Can you say amen to that? And therefore, you will find that the Bible is calling us as God called John, as God worked through Jesus, as God worked through Paul, and the message was the same, a message of a call to repentance is the same message that God has given to his people in the last days before this world comes to a close. The message is not to tell everybody that everything is all right. In fact, you will find that that's the actual problem. Go to the book of Revelation chapter three. There are many individuals today that believe that the more that we preach about a message saying that everything's all right, everybody's all right that the more that we preach this kind of message, that this supposedly is the message, but I see that not in the Bible. In fact, I see differently. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter. The Bible says in Revelation chapter three, God sees a people of the judgment, Laodicea. And as he sees them, he sees them going through challenges. And I want you to notice specifically what the challenge is. The Bible says in Revelation chapter three, and we're gonna go ahead and start at verse 14. You know these texts very well, I would imagine. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, and so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, what would make God want to vomit? Sooner or later, you've got to ask that question. What in the world could it be that could make God such a wonderful, divine individual? What could make him to the point that he actually would equate his displeasure to the experience of vomiting? The Bible tells us exactly what it is right there in verse 17. It says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. You know, in other words, that means it means that I'm all right. Laodicea wants to hear messages that they're all right because that's what they already think about themselves and they don't understand that they're not all right. That's why God said, because thou sayest." In other words, God was saying, I'm not in agreement with you. These are your words, Laodicea. But then when God transitions from our words to his words, you'll notice that he does not say that we are all right. But he tells us the truth. He says that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. You know, the last time I checked, an alcoholic can never overcome alcohol until he admits he's an alcoholic. The drug addict can never overcome their drugs until they admit that they are drug addicts. And the Laodicean will never receive healing from Jesus Christ until they admit that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The more that we think that we're all right when we're all wrong, is the greater we testify that this disease has metastasized and it has taken over our entire body. God wants us to realize that there is a message that is needed unto the people. And you know what's interesting? This is God's last day people because this is the last church. And I want you to see what was on God's mind even towards his last day people. Notice what he says in verse 19. The Bible says in verse 19 of Revelation 3, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He says, be zealous, therefore, and there goes that word again. There goes that word again. So repentance is not a message that is limited just to John the Baptist days. Repentance is not a message that is limited just to Jesus's day. Repentance is not a message that was limited even to Paul's day. Repentance is a message that is even relevant today. And God's faithful workers, brothers and sisters, must in these last days give the message that is designed to prepare the people to meet their God. And therefore, God gives a message of repentance. Now, you want to know why repentance is so important? You want to know why repentance is so important? I want you to go to the book of Acts chapter 3 and let me show you why. Repentance is important to God. And I want you to show you why repentance is important to God. You see, God wants to do something. In fact, before you go to Acts chapter 3, go to to Isaiah 59. Let's let's reason through the scriptures. Let's go to Isaiah the 59th chapter first, and then we'll come back to Acts chapter 3. Isaiah 59. Why does God, why is it that repentance is so heavily upon the mind of Jesus Christ? Why Notice why. The Bible says in Isaiah, the 59th chapter, and I want you to see this in Isaiah, the 59th chapter. Notice what the Bible says as we consider verses one and two, Isaiah 59 verses one and two. The Bible says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. It says, but your what? It says, but your iniquities have done something. What did they do? It has separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not what? He will not hear. Now, there's a beautiful hymn called Face to Face, Shall I Behold Him. Have you ever heard of that hymn? Now, brothers and sisters, is that a hymn you just want to sing, or is that a hymn you want to experience? That's a hymn we want to do what? We want to experience. We don't want to just sing a hymn but never enter the experience. That's what makes hymns powerful. Hymns were designed to bring us into an experience. It's different from just a song. That hymn, brothers and sisters, is designed to bring us into an experience. And that hymn is saying that face to face shall I behold him. That should be something that we are all looking forward to. Can the church say amen to that? Amen. Now, because of the fact that we are looking forward to it, then Isaiah 59 2 should become a very relevant text of scripture to you and I. Because the Bible says that there was something that caused God to do what? Turn his face from us. And what was it? It was sin. You see, the reason God is making a call to repentance is because he wants us to enter into an experience that we can turn away from the things that cause him to turn his face from us. When we think about sin, we often think about what it did to us. Very rarely do we consider what it did to God. God loved to commune with mankind face to face. God loved to have that one on one time where there was nothing between him, no mediums, no burning bushes, no human agents like ministers. God loved it when he could look at mankind right in the face and he can commune with him. But it was sin that caused God to turn his face. And that's why God is in love with the call to repentance, because the call to repentance is a call to him. And when we come to him, he gives us the victory over the things that caused him to turn his face from us. And when we have that victory, praise God, when Jesus comes once again, there's going to be face to face communion. That's what God wants. That's why the message of repentance, the message of repentance is not a call where we are just simply to make people feel bad. The message of repentance is a call to say God is waiting to be reunited with his people and the only way it can happen is that thing that caused him to turn his face from us must be overcome and therefore there is a need for the message of repentance. You see there's something that Jesus began doing in 1844 and when repentance is received right Jesus can finish what he started in 1844. Go to the book of Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, there was something that Jesus started in 1844 that if we can get this right, Jesus can finish what he started in 1844. The Bible says in Acts, the third chapter, in Acts chapter 3, The Bible says in verse 19 the Bible says repent ye therefore and be converted that what will happen that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus in order for Christ to come back that Sin that caused him to turn his face from us must be what? According to the verse, what must it be? It must be blotted out. But in order for it to be blotted out, there's a step by step process. You see, right now in heaven, Jesus is not just doing a forgiving work. Right now in heaven, Jesus is not just doing a covering work. Right now in heaven, Jesus is doing a blotting out work. And the blotting out work is falls in only one of two directions. The first one we just saw is either sins get blotted out, but we need to see the other direction. Go to the book of Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, you will notice the other direction. Either sins get blotted out or something else gets blotted out. Notice what the Bible says in Exodus 32. Moses sees his people in apostasy. And as Moses sees his people in apostasy, Moses, with love in his heart, looks at his people and his heart is broken because he sees that they have fallen into sin. He goes before God as an intercessor, and the Bible says in Exodus 32 and verse 31, the Bible says, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, what does Moses say? Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. Moses was literally going before God and saying, Lord, if you won't forgive them, take my name out of the book of life. Do you love people like that? Do you love your brothers and your sisters in the church like that? Husbands, do you even love your wives like that? Wives, do you love your husbands like that? Parents, do you love your children like that? Your desire is for them to be saved to the point that if they will not be saved, you would go before God and say, Lord, please forgive them. Have mercy on them. Save them. And father, if not, then you know what? I can't imagine life without them. Take my name out of the book of life. Do you have that kind of love? Let me tell you something. If you don't have it, you won't go to heaven. The only people that are going to make it into eternal life are the people who know how to love like Jesus loved. Moses had the love of Christ in his heart. Moses said, Lord, blot my name. out. I would prefer to suffer the second death than to be without those people. That was the kind of love that Moses had for those people. Did Jesus have that kind of love? You better believe he did because Galatians 3 tells us that when someone hangs on a tree, they fall under God's curse. And when you die under God's curse, there is no hope of a resurrection. Jesus was willing not to suffer simply a first death. He was willing to suffer the second death for you and I. Jesus was willing to be separated from the father forever so that you may live. That was the kind of love that Christ had. Do you have that love? And if you don't have it, you got to fall on your knees and say, Lord, please pour out thy spirit and give me this love. But look at how God responds to Moses. Even though Moses was filled with all of that love towards the brethren, look at how God responds to Moses in verse 33. We're looking at the second thing that gets blotted out. It says in verse 33, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, what does the verse say? Him will I blot out of my book. You see, since 1844, Christ has been doing a blotting out work. And according to the Bible, only one of two things get blotted out either sins or people. Only two things get blotted out, brothers and sisters, sins or people. I want you to imagine that right now in the heavenly sanctuary, your life and my life is being reviewed. And the decision factor that God is going to make is either Dwayne Lemon's name gets blotted out Or his sins get blotted out. And God is saying the same thing on behalf of you and I. And the only way that our sins can get blotted out is that the Bible says, Repent. That's where it starts. Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Is that simple? Is that simple? But brothers and sisters, you know, as simple as the concept is, the experience is not as easy. How does an individual have a kind of repentance that God can actually not only forgive their sins, but pardon them and eventually completely blot them out so that God says, I can trust you in heaven with me. That's the goal. That's the call. That's the study. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we have an idea. We know that there are several texts in scripture that tell us about this thing called repentance, but I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, because I believe it will give us some gems that will help us through this process. I want my sins to get blotted out, and I want my name to remain. How about you? Amen? Amen. So therefore, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, let's notice what the text of Scripture says to yours and my mind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9, it says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow to what? Repentance. repentance. So one of the first things we learn about repentance is that it is always inclusive of what? Speak up, brethren. What is it always inclusive of? It is always inclusive of sorrow. So therefore, I want you to see that because we're studying about repentance. We know the need for repentance. We understand why God wants us to repent. But now we need to understand the word repent simply means to turn away. In this case, we know we need to turn away from sin. But the question is, how do you do that? How many of you have tried to turn away from sin and have failed? So therefore, the question is, why? Well, one of the things we just found out is what is it that's always connected with repentance? sorrow. That's connected to it. Now watch this. The Bible goes on to say, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Now I want to introduce some news to you. What is it that's always connected to repentance? Sorrow. Sorrow. Some of you say, but I have been sorry before. Is that right? Now, brothers and sisters, I've learned something, you know, and and being a father, this helps out a lot because sometimes we're sorrowful about things. Have you ever heard? In fact, have you ever heard somebody say something like this? They do something wrong and then they say sorry. Have you ever said back to a person something like this? No, you're not. Have you ever said that before? Has Has anybody ever said that? Okay, so it's not just me. Parents, have you ever had children and the children are together? playing or doing whatever they do, and eventually one child offends another. And when the child offends the other, then all of a sudden the parents tell one child, say sorry to the other child. Parents, you ever did that before? You tell the one child to say sorry to the other child? Now, watch this. When the one child says sorry to the other child, have you ever seen the child do something like this? They go, I'm sorry. And they kind of say it with an attitude. You know what I'm talking about? Now, when the child says, I'm sorry, and they say it with an attitude, how many of you have done this? You go to that child and say, You are not sorry. Say it again. Has anybody ever done that? All right. So there's a lot of common ground in this room right now. Now, do you know that we were wrong? You know we were wrong for doing that. You know that? Did you know, brothers and sisters, that every time, every time a person says they're sorry, they mean it? Did you know that? You're looking at me like I have two heads. Every time every time someone says every time that husband wives says he did you know he meant it every time that wife husbands she said honey i'm sorry you know she meant it every time those children parents when that child says mommy and daddy i'm sorry did you know they meant it you see the issue is not if they're sorry. I believe that everybody who says they're sorry are sorry. The question is not, are you sorry? The question is, what kind of sorrow do you have? You see, notice what it says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. The Bible says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, it says, for godly sorrow, what kind of sorrow? It says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. How many types of sorrow do you see in that verse? You see two. What are the two? Godly sorrow that leads to life. Worldly sorrow that leads to So in other words, everybody who says they're sorry are sorry. The question is not, are you sorry? The question is, what kind of sorrow? Is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? That's more of the question that the husband needs to find out from his wife. That's more of the question the wife needs to find out from the husband. That's more of the question that the parent needs to find out from the child. What kind of sorrow do you have? Because there's a false repentance, but then there's a true repentance. And tonight, God is making a call to true repentance. How do you know the difference? They're both sorrows but they have two totally different experiences. One is death, the other one is life. How do you determine, how do you know? This is why I believe the subject of repentance is something that needs to be studied. It is not something that we just simply talk about or just ask people, are you repentant for this? Do you know that every time I've done this message, every single time, there are people from the pastor to the pew that can honestly say, I have never experienced true repentance. Been in the church for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and never experienced true repentance? But that's because it was never studied. The Bible says that there's worldly sorrow that leads to death. There's godly sorrow that leads to life. I need to know which one have I demonstrated. We will start with godly sorrow. Go to verse 11 of the same book, same chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, the Bible tells us about the godly sorrow. We want to ascertain that one very quickly. The Bible says in verse 11, it says, For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, it says, What carefulness! It wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. The Bible has just revealed in verse 11 the fruit that grows off of the tree of those who are experiencing true repentance. The first fruit. The Bible says what carefulness it wrought in you. I want you to imagine a father. I often share this story and I never get tired of it because I believe it makes the point so wonderfully. There's a father who has two sons. And he has worship with his children every morning with his bride. And they come together and they have worship. And as they have worship, he has a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And they all come together every morning for worship. And as they come together every morning for worship, when worship is finished, the father has to now go to work. Mother stays home. She homeschools her children. Well, here it is that the father's getting ready to go to work. And the three-year-old says, Daddy, can I go to work with you? Daddy looks at that precious little three-year-old. and Daddy says, you know you can't work with me. You have to stay home with mother. The baby says, oh, Daddy, please, please, can I go? The father says, no, you cannot go. You have to stay here with Mommy. The child is disappointed, and father goes outside, and he goes inside of his truck to start his engine so the engine can warm up. And while the engine's warming up, he's going through his papers getting ready for his day. Mother's in the kitchen with the five-year-old, and mother is preparing food to get ready for breakfast. Well, here it is. The three-year-old sees mother busy, and the three-year-old looks and sees father busy in the truck. The three-year-old decides, I'm going to go ahead and surprise my daddy. I'm going to go to work with him. That three-year-old opens that door, and he begins to creep. He doesn't want Daddy to see him, so he's creeping. He's creeping real low. And as he's creeping really low, he's trying to get behind the truck because what he wants to do is when he gets behind the truck, he's going to climb up the truck and sneak inside of the bed. And when his Daddy pulls up at work, he's going to say, Surprise! That little three-year-old walks behind that truck, and he's so excited because he's going to go ahead and surprise his daddy. But right at the time that he's behind the truck getting ready to surprise his daddy, his daddy realizes that the engine is now ready. The father goes ahead and he puts his truck in reverse. He backs out of the truck or the driveway, and he crushes his three-year-old son. Killed him. The mother, the father, and the five-year-old are at a funeral. They're looking at a casket that is hardly any bigger than this television screen. Their precious three-year-old is inside of that casket. The father is crying, and he's saying, my son, my son. His heart is broken. Eventually, they bury his son. They go back home. And now the father has one child remaining. Eventually, over time, the father has to go back to work. When the father, mother, and now only their five-year-old have worship, the father says, all right, family, I'm going to work. Question. When the father goes in the truck and starts that engine, From a scale of 1 to 10, how careful do you think that father is going to be when he backs out of that driveway? From a scale of 1 to 10, how careful would you think that father is going to be? You tell me. 10, 10 plus 10, 10 plus plus 10. You can imagine this father investing in those cameras that they put in the back of the truck. You can imagine this father putting those alerting signal things. You can imagine this father investing in everything necessary to make sure another mistake does not happen like what took place before. In other words, that father is seriously careful. Now, here's the question. Are you that careful to not fall back into the sin today that you fell in yesterday? The Bible says that the fruit of true repentance is it says, yea, what carefulness you wrought wrought in you. Do you know, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we fall into the same sins over and over and over again is because we are not careful. We say we're repentant. We say, oh, Lord, forgive me. And we always confuse tears with repentance. Repentance. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We are a people that approach the Bible intelligently, and we do not feel or make decisions based on emotional expression. Just because we cried does not mean that we were repentant. Just because we shed tears, brothers and sisters, does not mean that we have been repentant. It is so easy for us to do the same sin. Think about it. It's not that we commit new sins every day. We are struggling with the same thing. Why? Because we're not careful. But yet we claim that we're repentant. The Bible says true repentance brings about a carefulness in an individual. Now, there are two ways that we can be careful. Go to the book of Galatians chapter six. You see, I want to walk this through with you, brothers and sisters. I want you to see this. Because God wants us to understand that it is true repentance that leads to true conversion that leads to the blotting out of sin. But it will never take place. If we continue this roller coaster lifestyle with Jesus and we have never entered that experience of true repentance. Notice what the Bible says in Galatians chapter six. You see, in Galatians, the sixth chapter, the Bible says something very powerful in verse one that I want us to consider. You see. I like this verse because this verse says so much to me. Look at what it says. It says in Galatians 6 and verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You see, this verse brings out the reality of being careful. How many times do we have a young lady that meets a man? She meets a man, she falls heads over heels for him. And next thing you know, that brother becomes an agent of the devil and he begins to introduce her into the bed of fornication. They begin to practice that which the Bible calls sin. And then that sister knows this is wrong what we're doing. We need to stop. Everybody tells her you need to let that man go. You need to cut him off. But you know what she says? She says, oh, no, I want to win him to Jesus. Therefore, she continues to pursue and continues to pursue. She's not being careful. She has not considered herself, lest she is also tempted. That's a call to being careful. Brothers and sisters, listen, if you know that you used to be a crack addict, you don't want to necessarily be the one unless you have true victory to go into a crack house to help the other crack addicts. Because you might end up being around that crack, and before you know it, all it takes is a couple of sniffs and a couple of observations, and when you were trying to evangelize them, they evangelize you. How many times has that happened? A young man wants to go around all these brothers. He knows that these guys are not conducive to Christian growth. They know that these type of friends are the kind of individuals that's going to lead me more in the path of sin and hell rather than eternal life. But you know what they say? But I like them. You know what? I'm going to try to win these brothers to the truth. And next thing you know, when they were trying to evangelize the brothers, the brothers end up evangelizing them. You think that's not the story of many of our youth today in the church? They have all these worldly friends. You tell them, listen, God says that those who are friends of the world are enemies of God. Just James four and verse four. You can't be friends with the world. You can try to witness to them, but you don't go ahead and befriend them and hang out with them in every circumstance because you got to consider yourself. Lest you be tempted. You know, I had to realize that in my own life. I remember I got to a point I used to be a major video game player. Love playing video games all the time, just video games all day long, wasting God's money. And I remember it got to a point where I got really convicted on this video game thing. I said, man, you know, this is a waste of money. I'm putting all these images of violence and and, and sometimes sexuality. Why why do I, this thing is not drawing me close to Jesus. What am I doing with this stuff? But you know what? I had a friend in my life. And every time I went to my friend's house, every single time I go to his house and you know what he says? All right, man, let's start playing the game. And you know what? I was so weak that all he had to do was just say, come on, man, let's just play the game. And next thing you know, no matter. I could I could literally walk in his house with a determination. I'm not going to play the game. 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 And next thing you know, all he had to do is just say, come on, man, let's play the game. And it was like, I'm not going to. All right, let's do it. Next thing you know, here we are playing the game. And you know what happens now? Conviction. That conviction hits me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, I did it again shamed God's name and was a foul witness to my boy. And that's why one day God just gave me the courage. I had to call him up and I had to say, D, listen, man, I love you like a brother. You know I do. But listen, I'm realizing that our lives are going in two different paths. When I come by, I said, look, all I wanna do is talk of Jesus and his truth. That's all I wanna do, man. I said, I can't help it. It's God's word has my mind captive. I can't help it. That's all I want to talk about. And I know that you don't want to hear it. So please understand that if you find that we're not hanging out like we used to, just understand it's because we have both decided paths that can't mix. That was a hard thing to tell him, but I had to tell him. And that's when he finally said, you know what? I respect that. And we left it alone. You got to know yourself, brothers and sisters. You got to stop trying to be Superman and Superwoman and keep going in places that you know are instruments of temptation that you know you can't handle you got to cut that stuff out and you're going to find yourself dead if you're not careful, brothers and sisters. Part of true repentance is being careful and being careful is going to be manifested by the fact that you're going to say, while I even want to win others to Jesus, I must be mindful of my own weaknesses. You got to know that I have learned. We have a study on men. This study that I do when we deal with men and what makes a godly what makes a man a godly man. And when we do that study, that's one of the things we talk about. And, you know, one of the greatest strengths of a man is when he knows his weaknesses. That's one of the greatest strengths of a man is when he can know his weaknesses and say, I can't handle this. Somebody else has to do this job. Can't handle it you got to know your weaknesses. So therefore, when we talk about true repentance, the first sign of it is that you have to be careful. And in that being careful, you are going to consider the fact that, you know what, I can't just go everywhere and I can't just do everything because I'm not Superman. I got to know my weaknesses. But there's another side of being careful. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 12. You see, one aspect of being careful is the refraining and staying away from things that can tempt you and lead you back into sin. That's how it happens, brothers and sisters. Every person in this room right now that is addicted to pornography, let me tell you something. Because I'm not dumb, brothers and sisters. I know what's going on even in the Adventist church. There are many brethren who come to church and all this other stuff, but you know you hit those www.xxx things way too much and you're looking at them. Not even way too much at all. But I understand that addiction. So therefore, I'm telling you, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If you keep finding yourself on these foul sites, cut your Internet off. There comes a point in time you got to cut off. There comes a point in time you got to look at it and say, I can't handle this right now. I can't handle it right now. Every time I get access to the super information highway, I find myself going places that I have no business going, and I find myself going down the road to perdition. You know what? I need to go back to dial-up. Got to stop all this streaming. It's killing me you got to learn that there are times that God is going to have to call you to cut off. Sisters, There's some brothers in your life right now that is nothing but bad news for you. Every time you get around them, all they do is they consistently lead you and your life into sin. They're taking you away from the prayer meeting. They're taking you away from church service. They're taking you away from morning and evening worship. They're taking you away from a love for the study of the word. They're taking you away from God, brothers and sisters. Sisters, if you got a brother in your life like that, you need to cut that brother off. Cut him off. Your soul salvation is on the line. Amen. Brothers, if you got some woman in your life and that sister, she's always the one that's calling and wooing and trying to get you to give in to every woo and call that she makes. And you find that when you're with her, your last thing you're doing is praying together and studying together. And the list goes on of learning how you can grow together and finish the work of the gospel. If You got a woman like that in your life, brothers, you need to cut that sister off. So it doesn't matter if it's an object. It doesn't matter if it's a person or whatever. And like I said, don't give me this stuff about, oh, but we got to win souls. Listen to me. The Bible says ye which are spiritual restore such a one. If you're not spiritual, if you know you're not connected to God, if you know there's not a vital connection between you and Christ, that no matter how hard they bring temptation, that you can stand against it. If you have that kind of wherewithal, then maybe you can go ahead and still be around them. But if you find that every time you're in that person's presence, all they have to do is just say something, and you're like putty in their hands. Leave that person alone. You're not strong enough. Cut them off. But while there's a cutoff, There's a cut on. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew, the 12th chapter. Notice what the Bible says here now. Matthew, the 12th chapter. The Bible says in Matthew, the 12th chapter, if you're there, say amen. The Bible talks about in verse 43, a house and unclean spirits. The Bible says in Matthew, the 12th chapter in verse 43. Notice this now. It says when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it what? Empty. And what else? Swept and garnished. So this house is clean, but it's empty. Are you following that? Clean, but empty. Then it goes on to say, verse 45. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And the last state of that man is worse than the first even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. In this case, this brother, his house used to be dirty. His house used to be messed up, the same way yours and my life used to be dirty. Yours and my life used to be messed up. But then we find Jesus, and when we accept him in our hearts, he comes and he does a clean-up work. But brothers and sisters, it's not enough for Jesus to do a clean-up work because you got to make sure that after he does the clean-up work and he gets rid of the filth, you have to be filled with the righteousness. If you just sweep out filth, but there's nothing in between and you're empty and hollow and idle. Then idle time becomes the devil's workshop. So while it is true that we are to cut off, cut off the bad, we are to embrace, embrace the good. You can't just leave your life empty and idle. You must be filled with the spirit of God and you must do the works of Christ in your life. This is how you can avoid the traps of Satan. You know, how a lot of young people especially find themselves falling back into the traps of sin, falling back into the traps of sin. Idle time. Idle time. One of the things that concerns me is when I call somebody and I say, what are you doing? They say nothing. What do you mean you're doing nothing? You should always be doing something. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that when Jesus does a clean out work, he also wants to do an input work and he wants to put his spirit inside of us and he wants us to be engaged in his work. This is why you have the story of the laborers in the vineyard. And you remember that the master came to one of the laborers and he said, why stand ye idle in my vineyard? When you come to Jesus and when He does His cleanup work, we must understand that now I need to avail myself to Him so that I can be one of His workers because we're living in the time of the harvest. One of the great reasons why God's people continually fall back into sin over and over and over again is because they're too idle. They're too busy sometimes doing things that have nothing to do with building up God's kingdom. And all they're doing is trying to gain the things of this world. This is why we have the workers of the harvest meeting. This is why we have the training. There's a work that needs to be finished. And God needs workers. And too many people are busy trying to make a penny for a dollar. God says there's a work that needs to be finished. Do you believe it? And if you do, God says, while I clean you out, I want to fill you with my spirit. I want to empower you to do my work. Don't be idle, brothers and sisters. It's the devil's workshop. You will find that that is one of the easiest ways that he takes God's people down every single time. So while there is a cut off, there's also a cut on. You must be busy about your father's business. Jesus at 12 years old, his parents were not about their father's business, but thank God Jesus was. And when his parents finally found him, at 12 years old, Jesus says, don't you understand? I must be about my father's business. That's one of the reasons why Satan couldn't get an advantage over him. Jesus was always busy about his father's business. Brothers and sisters, I'm trying to tell you that if you and I do not understand this principle of being careful... You're gonna keep falling back into the same thing. And you know what happens when you keep trying to stop sinning, and then all of a sudden you find yourself being overtaken over and over and over again in the same thing? You start giving up. You start saying this whole gospel thing is foolishness. It's not real, at least not for me. And this is why you see a lot of people leaving the remnant church now. Jesus has given us a formula of how we can cease to be dominated. By the things that take the majority of the people in this world, which is sin. True repentance. What about this worldly sorrow thing? What is that? Go to Matthew 27. In Matthew, the 27th chapter, notice what the Bible says here. In Matthew 27, we find ourselves toward the close of Christ's life. And the Bible says something in Matthew 27 that we would do well to consider. Bible says in Matthew 27 starting at verse 1 it says when the morning was come all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death and when they had bound him they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor then Judas which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned repented himself so what did Judas do so Judas repented The Bible says Judas repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Question. Did Judas repent? How could you say no? The Bible said he did. How could you say no? In other words, I asked you a rhetorical question. Did Judas repent? Of course he did. The Bible said so. But what do we learn? What's always connected to repentance? Sorrow. Sorrow. How many sorrows are there? Two kinds of sorrow. One sorrow leads to life and the other one leads to death. All right. So therefore, the real question is, what kind of sorrow did he have? Okay, he had worldly sorrow. Now, why do you say he had worldly sorrow? Because he hung himself? So are you saying his repentance was not genuine because he hung himself? Is that the reason Why? So let me make sure I understand. Are you saying that when a man deliberately does something that he knows will take his life that he is not truly repentant? I'm just asking a question, brother and sister. We're studying. I like to stimulate thought. That's what a teacher does. Are you telling me that because he made a decision to do an act that he knew was going to destroy his life that you call that suicide and therefore you say that he did not have true repentance. Is that what you're telling me? Okay, so do we know anybody else in the Bible who made a decision deliberately that he knew was going to take his life? That was a servant of God. Samson, did Samson have true repentance? Okay, now you just confused me. What's up with that? What's going on, brethren? What happened? Did Samson know Did Samson say, I am going to push these pillars. I know that it's going to crush me and kill me. Yes or no? No. In other words, I present arguments to you that the dear people that you're going to be working for in the harvest will present to you. There are movies, there are books right now that are talking about Judas experienced true repentance. And therefore, they say Judas will be in heaven. Now, is that true? No, it's not. Let's learn something about repentance. Go to the book of Acts 5. We're almost done. We're almost done. You're not not getting bored, are you? Heaven forbid. Uh Uh-uh, not while I'm up here. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Mm -mm. The word of God is not boring. No, it is not. Go to the book of Acts chapter 5. Long to preach from the word, it's not boring. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 5 now. And let's learn something about repentance. Very important. Verse 31. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Because we're going we're to we're zoom in on Judas' life. We're going to learn some things about Judas tonight. Because it's not enough to just know what godly sorrow is. We need to understand what this worldly sorrow is. So that we can carefully examine our hearts. And find out which one we have. And if we have the wrong one, we need to get the right one. The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. If you're there, please say amen. The Bible says, Him hath God exalted with his right hand. To be a prince and a savior for to what? For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What do we learn from the verse according to repentance? What do we learn? What do we learn about repentance in Acts 531? Let's look at it again. It's all right. We can look at it again. That's all right place of so much sermonizing, God's people need to come together, study text by text to know what they believe. Acts 5.31. Look at the text again. We're trying to get a lesson about repentance. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to what? Give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What did we learn about repentance in the verse? Repentance is given and is not something that comes naturally. Is that is that is that brought out from the verse? Yes. Repentance is given. It's not something that you and I can develop naturally. It has to be given to us from God. Are you following that so far? Now watch this. This is why I know, based on this principle, this is why I know there's no way that Judas could have had true repentance. Go to the book of John, the 13th chapter. Watch this now. This is why I know that Judas could not have possibly had true repentance. Notice what the Bible says. John 13. In John, the 13th chapter, Jesus is sitting with all of his disciples as they're having that final meal. And as they're having their meal, you'll notice that the Bible now says that Jesus tells them, one of you are going to betray me. In verse 21, if we're there, say Amen. John 13 and verse 21, the Bible says when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Jesus said that now. It says, then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus's breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now look at what it says in verse 27. The Bible says, and after the sop, what is the commentary on Judas's condition? Satan entered into him. So notice that's the commentary on the life of Judas. This is the last commentary on the condition of Judas. It says Satan entered into him. Now, is this the first time that Satan entered into him? How do you know that? The the perfume? What happened at the perfume? When he said, hey, what are you doing? This is expensive oil. So much that. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that, that that means Satan is entered? Have you ever, have you ever dropped something or seen something? You said, "What are you doing? That, that's expensive." Or what have you? I mean, I don't know if would you would you say honestly that that's a demonstration that Satan has entered into Judas? The fact that he was he was questioning, "Hey, we, we could have used that oil and used some money to put into the treasury." I mean, he did say the treasury. Go to John chapter six. Is it the first time that Satan entered into Judas? John chapter six. You remember Jesus put out this test question. And as Jesus put out this test question, Jesus was testing the people when he talked about those who eat my flesh and drink my blood shall never die. And when he threw that test at all those people following him, the Bible says in verse 66, what happened? Notice what it says. John 6, 66. The Bible says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. A whole bunch of people went and left Jesus. Now, look at what happened. Jesus, of course, is hurt by this, but it goes on to say in verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Now, look carefully at verses 70 and 71. It says Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you 12? What's the end of the sentence? And one of you is what? A devil. Who was Jesus talking about in verse 71? Judas. So does the Bible make clear that this is not the first time Judas and Satan became partners? This is not the first time. Is that right? So therefore, when the Bible says that Satan entered into him, it's got to mean something deeper than simply that Satan had an influence over him. Satan had an influence over him be well before this time. When the Bible says Satan entered into him, the Greek says Satan had full control over him. In other words, brothers and sisters, it was right there at John 13, 27. That Judas's probation closed. Satan didn't just enter him, Satan now had full control over him. And that's why when you read John 13, 27, and in verse 28 and 29, it later on says, and it was night. Probation closed. Now here's my question. How can somebody repent? God has to what? Give it to them. But How could God give Judas repentance in Matthew 27 if in John 13, 27, his probation closed? That means time's up. It's over. So there's no way that Judas could have manifested true repentance because that only comes from God and his probation was already closed. So the question is this. What then motivated Judas' repentance? Was Judas a student of the scriptures? Here we go, friends. I'm about to show you the crux of worldly sorrow. Was Judas a student of the scriptures? Yep. There's a text of scripture that Judas remembered when he condemned Jesus. What did Judas say about Jesus? He says, I condemned a what kind of man? He said an innocent man, didn't he? You want to know the flashback that went in Judas' mind, the biblical flashback? Deuteronomy 27. Watch this. This is the foundation of all worldly sorrow, all false repentance. Deuteronomy 27. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter, when you get there, please say amen. Here's what the Bible says. You're about to find out. Judas says he condemned an innocent man. This is what Judas remembered. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 25. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 27, 25, it says. The Bible says 27, 25, right? Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person and all the people shall say amen. Judas knew, because I have condemned an innocent person and took a reward for it, Judas knew I am under God's curse. And that was the motivation for his repentance. In other words to make it real plain. Worldly sorrow is never sin focused. Worldly sorrow is always consequence focused. Did you hear what I just said? Worldly sorrow is never sin-focused. Worldly sorrow is always consequence-focused. You see, when a child says, mother and father, I'm sorry, the question is, are you sorry because you realize the wrong that you have done or are you sorry because you know the wrath shall come? When a child says mother and father, I am sorry, but in their mind they're saying, I'm saying that because I don't want that rod. That is worldly sorrow and that will lead to death. When a man goes to his wife and he says, honey, I'm sorry. But the only reason he says it is because he knows that if he doesn't apologize, she's going to keep chattering, chattering, chattering away and give him a headache. So therefore, he says, all right, all right, I'm sorry. (laughs) Consequence focused. Consequence focused. When we go to God and we say, oh, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. But the only reason we said it is because we knew we just went on a job interview and we don't want anything to mess up getting that job. So, Lord, let me make all my wrongs right with God. Consequence focused. If the truth be told. And do you know, brothers and sisters, it's even worldly sorrow when we say, oh, Lord, please forgive me for my sins because I don't want to go to hell. Consequence-focused. You see, David, David fell into sin. David was looking where he should not have been looking. And as David was gazing and he was looking at Bathsheba, Satan played with that man's mind so much that David got to the point that David said, you know what? I'm going to do it. He goes ahead and he falls into sin and he has an innocent man killed just to gratify his appetite. David is confronted by Nathan. And Nathan presents that story that I know you know very well. And Nathan lets him know you are the man. You're guilty, David. And David says something so powerful in his prayer of repentance. And I want you to see this as we close in Psalms 51. It is in that prayer of true repentance that David says something in that prayer that we would do well to consider. I want you to see what he says in verses 1 to 4. David goes before God. He realizes what's about to fall upon him. And he says in verse 1, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy lovingkindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But look carefully at verses three and four. The spirit of true repentance. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David was not consequence focused. David said, Lord, I broke your heart. I broke your heart. Against you and against you only have I sinned against you and I've done this evil in thy sight. Lord, I am not not shunning away the reality that this is something that I did that has broken your heart. Have mercy on me. A man comes before Jesus or comes before God. He's so broken, so filled with sorrow for sin that all he can do, Jesus says, is beat his hand upon his breast and hang his head down and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. great issue with Laodicea is they can't see their sins because they're too busy gazing at their own righteousness. They're gazing at their own good works. They think that because they eat right and dress right and live in the right places and do the right things, they think that this constitutes righteousness and therefore they feel even bigger because they know the majority of their dear brethren around them are not doing the same thing. Therefore they begin to think something about themselves that they ought not They can't see themselves as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And therefore, they'll go before God. They'll say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. But they say it more so because it's consequence-focused, not because it's sin-focused. Brothers and sisters, Christ is about to blot out the sins of his people in the sanctuary. And Jesus wants us to be a people prepared to meet our God. But it is not going to happen if we keep making excuses for our sins, keep ignoring our sins, keep falling into sins and playing and cheapening God's grace by just saying, you'll be there tomorrow to forgive me when I do it again. When does the time come that we will let him fill us with his presence and give us true repentance so that we can start being more careful. I'm going to make a very real appeal with you. I don't want you to worry about who's to your left or to your right. There's no one in this room, including yours truly, that has a heaven or hell to put you in. Your walk with God is yours. It's individual, it's personal. I want you to faithfully scan in your mind right now. And I want children to listen to me as well as the adults. If you can look back at your life and you can honestly say, Lord, after this study, I see more clearly than I've ever seen before I have not been careful. I have not been careful. I fall into sin. I mess up. I say I'm sorry. I'm not careful. I'm laxed. And then I fall into it again. I say I'm sorry. I'm not careful. I'm laxed. And then I fall into it again. I say sorry. I'm not careful. I'm laxed. And then I keep going around in this ridiculous circle, Lord. Not realizing that all you're doing is waiting to give me True repentance. True sorrow for sin. To a point that, like David, I can realize against thee and thee only have I sinned. And by your grace, Father. You know, we never hear that story again about David, do we? That's powerful. That's powerful. You never hear that story. In fact, when you study First Kings chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4 carefully, did you know, you see, the 1 Kings 1 or 1 Kings 4, but it tells us very clearly that David was stricken and old in years. And when he was cold, the brethren brought a woman to him so that he can go ahead and sleep with her to get warm. But do you know what verse four says? It says the king knew her not. Sounds like David got the point. That's repentance. That's repentance. David got it. God gave it and David abided in it and God kept it. You don't think God can do that with you? You, Do you you honestly think that you have to keep going back to the same thing all over again and again and again and again? I'm being real with you, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you that I pray God never, I pray that this never dies from my heart. I have a very honest approach with my Heavenly Father. And I go before God and I'll be the first person to tell God and say, Lord, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you, I hate you. And I don't. And I. And I don't. I'm not lax with that. What I'm saying is, is that I will let God know because He already knows my heart. And there are times that I went to God and I said, Father, I'm gonna be honest with you. I hate you and I hate your word. But I'm begging you, please take this stony heart. Give me a heart of flesh. Show me how to love you. Show me how to love you, Lord. I hate your word. I hate church. I hate all these things. I do it just to cooperate. I need this thing to be real. I want this thing to be so real in my heart. Literally, I'm on my bed this morning and I'm just and I'm literally by the bed and I'm just praying. I'm like, Father, make this thing real inside of me. This world is so wicked that it just affects you and infects you and you get to a point that all of what we do is like the rounds. Another GYC, another training, another church service, another thing, but I go back to that same lifestyle. When do we get tired of it? When do we get to a point That God becomes so real to us that he can actually keep us from falling. And he can present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When does that happen? I know God can do it. I know God can do it. We got to cooperate, brothers and sisters. We got to cooperate. If you look at your heart tonight, And you can honestly say, Lord I have not been careful and as a result of that I have not entered into that experience of repentance in the manner of heaven but tonight I'm asking you to give me that gift and make it real in my heart so that by your grace I'll start being more careful That's your testimony. You're saying, Lord, I have not been careful. And by your grace going forward, I want the experience of true repentance that I may be careful. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. You're being honest with your own heart. There's nobody else in here that has anything to put you in. You're being honest with your own heart because time is almost finished. God wants to save us. He can't save us while we're lying. He can only save us when we're telling the truth. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, many of us, we are not being careful. And that's why we just keep falling. Keep falling. I promise you, under the authority of the word of God, if you take the lessons you have learned tonight and you meditate on it, and you learn what it is to abide in Christ. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. That's going to be our focus tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, I have hit this Sunday law thing so hard. I've talked about several things going on in the church. I've talked about these things and brothers and sisters, I believe that though these points are necessary at their various times, I believe beyond anything else that what must swallow up every other doctrine is Christ our righteousness. How he can give us power to live a holy life in a sinful world. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. We've got to be real with this thing. Because when I look at the prophetic chart, I can see time is running out. And I know I need an experience with Jesus that's deeper than what I have. I believe you see it too. And as you're real with God, you're going to watch him do something very special in your heart. He's going to do a miracle inside of your heart. You get ready, brothers and sisters. Christ is going to work in you and through you for his glory in such a manner that even as his workers, you will be surprised at the power of the gospel. Surprised at the power of the gospel. So as you stand, know that Christ stands with you. Know that Jesus is on your side. He is determined to make sure you are saved. Cooperate with him. Cooperate with him. Please cooperate with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this gift of true repentance. We thank you, dear God, that you can help us to recognize that it is not by might, not by power, but only by your Spirit that we can see ourselves for who we really are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And while you're doing that work in heaven to blot out our sins, Father, we don't want to do anything that will frustrate that work. We want our names to remain in the book of life. And we want our sins to be blotted out of the book of records. And Father, we're thankful that through Jesus Christ, this is possible. And so we pray, dear God, that you will please pour out your spirit. That you'll do a miracle tonight and that you'll give us that gift of true repentance. And that we'll be careful. We'll be more careful, Lord. There are things we need to cut off. There's things we need to cut on. Let your spirit lead us. May he show us and make it plain to our hearts. And I thank you that you have heard this prayer. Teach us how to abide in you, Lord. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770 770- 770 Two seven four nine five three seven. That's seven seven zero two seven four nine five three seven. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.